0: I'm going to read for us and then Johnny is going to come up and help us to understand this part of Mark that we're going to be looking at today. Okay, so reading from verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, We saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made, to, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other.
1: morning, everyone. <coughs> if you've not met, my name's uh, Johnny, like quite a few other people here. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and we're in the, the middle of a, a series in, in, in the Gospel of Mark, as, as Annalise said. And last week we saw something pretty amazing, which uh, is very relevant to today's passage. At the beginning of chapter 9, we saw that Jesus was transfigured, or, or, or literally transformed, so that his disciples saw his true glory. Okay. Jesus literally burned bright during those moments. His humility in becoming human was almost peeled back to reveal how he's always been, how he is this morning, the glorious and eternal son of God. And you remember that a great cloud covered them on that mountainside. And the voice of God the father was heard through that cloud. And this is what he said, chapter nine, verse seven, if you still got your Bibles open, he said, this is my son who I love. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. And Johnny said last week, didn't he, if you were here, that this means listening to all the beautiful, life-transforming things he says to his followers about his grace, about his love, about his future promise to us. And Johnny also said that in these coming chapters, the first of which is here, He's also going to say quite a few things that we're just going to find it really hard to get our heads around, if not impossible to believe. But God is clear. We have to listen to Jesus on these things too. And in today's passage, Jesus speaks about both the most amazing life-transforming reality as well as possibly the hardest thing that we have to get our heads around as Christians. And the hardest thing is where Jesus describes a real place called hell now if this is your first week at the gate church this isn't an every week topic okay what we do is we just work through the bible and we teach what comes up when it does but there it is right at the end of our passage this unpopular mention of hell and i mentioned this at the end of our passage because it's normal isn't it if you've been around church for long enough to, to know that we start at the beginning of a passage and we almost work through that's kind of not just in church that's kind of how life works um but but I'm aware that some of you might actually be so shocked by what you've just read or what you've heard read that, that, that your mind isn't really able to engage with what I'm saying until we get until I get to the point where I start to speak about hell. And so what I'm gonna to do today, if it's okay, is almost work through the passage in reverse, starting with the, the the passage on hell and sin and then working the other way, and you'll see it all fits together. But before we even get into the passage, you might Actually thinks, you know what? Any talk of hell, whatever, is, is clearly unnecessary, scaremongering, and judgmental. But let me ask you, if hell is, imagine, okay, if hell is, as Jesus clearly teaches, a real place where real people go, wouldn't it be the most unloving thing to skirt around what Jesus clearly teaches? If you were standing in the middle of the road, Okay, and around, around the corner comes a 40-ton lorry. And one of your friends says, like, screams at you, get out of the way. What would you conclude? That they're a scaremonger or that they love you? You see, it would be the worst act of evil for me to stand up here and jump over what Jesus so clearly teaches about hell. It's not about what I say. It's about what Jesus says. This is my son who I love. Listen to him. So here's my challenge as we start. Are we ready to listen to what Jesus has to say to us this morning, both about the hardest thing and about the best news that he could have for us as Christians? Because as as tired or distracted as we might feel, we have to remind ourselves this morning that our response to the Lord Jesus Christ is going to dictate our eternity. I don't say that because I want to scare you. I say that of great love for you. And it's because what Jesus, it's just what Jesus says. So that's my first question. Are you listening to Jesus? But my next question is this. Well, my next question is, does this work? Yes, it does. And my question after that is, what is hell? And who goes there? So let's jump into the passage. Have it open if you can. Um, the, some of the readings will be on the screen, not all of them. Verse 42 and 43. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble... It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. Okay, that word that word, stumble there, that could equally, as some of our Bibles do, to be translated as sin. Okay, so say, same word. So what Jesus is saying is that it's better to drown ourselves then cause someone who believes in Jesus to sin, okay? Or, or personally speaking, if your hand or foot, verse 45, or, 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 or eye, verse 47, causes you to sin, cut it off. Gouge it out. Okay, now Jesus, of course, is, isn't talking literally here, okay? He's using a metaphor to communicate something that's true, okay? To communicate the point, and it's this, that sin is so serious, that it leads to hell. And what it means to be a sinner is to be the God of your own life. It's to have rejected the God who made you, the one we just read about there, the God who 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 loved you, who flung stars into space and created the heat of the sun and the atoms which make up the world and who gave us the gift of air in our lungs and the taste of chocolate and the pleasure of friendship. This God who is worthy of our whole hearts of our praise and of our love. This God who deserves to be on the throne of all of our lives, he is good and just, but sin is to reject him and his loving rule and place ourselves on the throne of our lives instead. Yeah, this sounds like some kind of grand decision that we either have to, to make or, or not, but actually it plays out in 101 everyday decisions across our life. You know, when my fellow human being cuts me up in the car and I let out a tirade of abuse. You know, I reveal who my God is and how I think others should revere me. Or as I say that harsh word about someone else, or as I choose to spend my time and my money on myself, or as I choose to click on that website, or as I decide what I, or what I should believe and what I shouldn't believe, or what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do, who is the lawmaker in my life? Who is the authority? in my life if it isn't me exchanging God's law exchanging God's authority for my own if you or I look back over the last week or even the last 24 hours the last hour in my case who is at the centre of our world our thoughts our anxieties our fears it's us isn't it people who were created to live for God's glory we've just read that this glory, the Bible says, which we've exchanged for our own. We see a really clear example of, of sin at work in the disciples um, in, in our passage. Have a look at verse 33 or 34. It's going to be on the screen as well. They came to Capernaum, as the disciples. We're doing this in reverse, so we can't see the chronology here, but they came to Caper- Capernaum, and when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? They kept quiet, right? obviously, because on the way, they'd argued about who was the greatest. That, it goes without saying they weren't making a case for hey God's the greatest. No, no, he's not. Yeah, he is. No, he's not. They're arguing for themselves. And while we might not do this in such a clear way, this is exactly what we're doing when we get bitter at other people, when we get jealous, when we get angry, when we get pleased when things don't quite work out for others, or when we look at our lives and we think do you know what they're doing pretty well here compared to you. Or when we look down on other people for whatever reason. We're having an internal dialogue, an internal argument about who is the greatest, and we're convincing ourselves it is us, when it's not. God is the greatest, and this is sin. And Jesus says it, doesn't he? Sin sends people to hell. Sin isn't some little character flaw. Yes, Jesus used metaphors of drowning and cutting off body parts, but this is to illustrate the truth of what he's saying, which is this, that sin really couldn't be any more serious. It'd be bad, wouldn't it? No matter what you think about the royal family, it'd be bad to rock up to Buckingham Palace, right? Get into the queen's throne room. I don't know if she sits there normally, but chuck her off, take her crown, stick her on there, take a scepter, whatever it's called, sit down on her throne and then use her power to order society around yourself. That'd be pretty bad. And if, if it'd be pretty bad for a human queen, how much more the eternal king whose glory last week we couldn't even look at for its moral purity and beauty. Sin is so, so serious, and this is why its punishment, namely hell, is so severe. And it's worth mentioning over the years when I've engaged with people about this, it's worth mentioning that we shouldn't be under any illusions that hell is some kind of fun place where all the cool people go, or where, or where my family members are going. So do you know what, that's where I want to go. Friends, Look, look with me at verse 48. Talking of hell, Jesus describes a place not of family reunions or parties, but a place where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Can you read that without tears in your eyes? If you can, I suggest you haven't understood it. Worms and fire are Old Testament pictures of God's right and fair judgment against sin. And Jesus' point here is clear enough: hell is eternal; it never ends. And maybe you think the price tag on sin, this punishment, just sounds way too harsh. Or given the justice of God. Given that God only does what is right, if anything were to convince us of the horror of sin, let it be this, that the fair and right punishment for sinning against an eternal God is eternal judgment. Brothers and sisters, if I could just make one final point, which is absolutely essential, because you might be sat there thinking, you know, I can pallet this because he's not talking about me. He's talking about someone else, you know. Whether we've been around church or not, we kind of convince us, you know, I'm a, I'm all right. I'm a good person. I'm I'm doing okay. Well, this Jesus, who com- who God commands us to listen to, unsurprisingly, says exactly the same as the rest of all of the Bible, and it's this that all of us, by nature, and by choice, are sinners. Jesus just assumes the universal sinfulness. Of human beings. He says stuff like, you who are evil, like, you who are sinful, just like throw away common, you who are sinful, if you can give good gifts, how much more your heavenly father? He just assumes it You know, the Bible's teaching about sin is summed up in these famous verses where the apostle Paul says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Again, Knowing where sin leads to. Can you read that without tears? God says, this is my son. Listen to him. Friends, there's an extent to which we do well to just sit and listen to Jesus, trusting like a child listens to his parents. But let me appeal to you in a slightly different way. You know, we as Christians, we talk quite a lot, don't we, about being saved. But if hell isn't real and if everyone goes to heaven... What are we being saved from? The answer, of course, is that we're being saved from God's judgment against our sin. Oh well, what about this one? If hell doesn't exist and everyone goes to heaven, where does that leave our mission as a church and your place in it? This won't make sense. What would be the point if everyone, or at least all the good people, by which standard, who knows, are, of co- are on course for heaven? But no, because hell is a real place where real people go. Our mission is urgent to tell people about Jesus. Jesus says in verse 49, "There, everyone will be salted with fire." You're like, "What's that about?" Salt and salt and fire are, are metaphors to, for refinement, aren't they? They refine, they cleanse impurity, they cleanse dirt, if you like. And Jesus is saying everyone's sin is going to be dealt with. No sin's going to go left unpunished. Everyone's sin is going to be dealt with no matter who they are. And so if sin leads to hell and if we're all sinners and if hell therefore is where we're all headed, then imagine, imagine there was some kind of divine intervention to cleanse us from our sin, not later but now. Some way to not enter the hell that we deserve but to enter instead the kingdom of God where we'll feast on God's glorious delights for eternity. Well, as sinners, you'd be right in thinking, do you know what, that's impossible. But imagine it were real. Wouldn't we snap out of our distracted lives of fretting about trivial stuff that prevent us from pouring over the Bible to see if this gracious offer of God is really true? And if we found God's offer of radical grace to be absolutely true, wouldn't we snatch this gift out of his hand? Wouldn't we refuse to leave this building until we could be absolutely 100% sure that we were going to heaven instead of hell? Wouldn't it change everything? Well, brothers and sisters, let's praise our God that his righteous and fair anger against us is matched and outstripped only by his vast love and grace for us. That he has made a way for us to be purified from sin so that we can this very morning be 100% assured of entering his eternal uh, kingdom, no matter who you are? That's our second question. How can we enter God's kingdom? We pick up the story at verse 30. It'll be on the screen. They, that's the disciples, left the place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus is saying, listen, guys, I'm going to the cross where I'm going to be killed. And while that sounds like bad news for us, in our situation, that literally could not be better news. Just as we have to listen to Jesus teaching about hell, we have to listen to him when he delivers the best news possible. And the cross is the best news possible. Because Jesus says later on, a chapter, sorry, it's probably you, Johnny, who's preaching sure on this, but a chapter on, Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That Jesus' death on the cross was a ransom. This is language from the slave market, not... Rightly so, not very common in our society, at least, yeah, we will talked about that on the time. But a slave's ransom was an amount of money paid to set that slave free, it was the price tag on their head. And do you see what Jesus is saying? You know, we've spoken about hell being the price tag for sin. And because God is a fair judge, the price for that sin has to and will be paid. But look at what Jesus is saying. I came to die in order to be their ransom, in order to pray the price for their freedom? (laughs) I mean, you might have heard this a million times, but have you heard it? Are you listening to the one who God says, listen to him? Are your hearts amazed by this Jesus? Jesus, God the Son, loved us so much, who continually sin against him, that he died on the cross to set us free from the hell that our sin deserves. On the cross, Jesus wasn't just receiving the punishment of human beings, he was receiving the very punishment of God the Father that was due to us for our sin. Isaiah 53, famous verses written hundreds of years before Jesus came into the world, said this, yeah, it was the Lord's will to crush him, that's Jesus, and cause him to suffer. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us have turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities or sins of us all. Brothers and sisters, on the cross, Jesus received the eternal punishment of hell that we deserved in our place. So there's no more punishment for sins. If we are in Jesus Christ, Romans 8.1, famous verse, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus This is the good news of the gospel. There is absolutely no better news than you'll ever hear than this, that your eternal punishment has been taken away, not just this morning, but forever, for eternity. You're able to live under the complete freedom of never having to ask if God loves you, of never having to ask if he will save you, of never having to ask if he's going to punish your sin, because he already has. How could a good and fair God punish sin twice? He's punished it in Christ so that if you're a Christian before you, there's no hell to fear. There's only God's kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus Christ died for and was raised to win for us. Look at verse 32. They, again, the disciples, didn't understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it, well, it's painfully obvious they didn't understand what he meant because it was directly after this they begin arguing about who's the greatest. So Jesus is saying, "Hey, listen, guys, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die for your sin, which convinces you that you're the greatest." And then they start arguing about who's the greatest. Painfully obvious, they don't have a clue what's going on. Okay, but perhaps how, how, how you feel a little bit like them. You don't really feel like you fully understand this. Well, remember that the part of Mark that we're in at the moment is all about how Jesus slowly. Opens the eyes of his blind disciples and in turn us to see who he is and what it means to follow him The disciples still believe Jesus is going to establish his kingdom by some great display of strength to take down the Romans Or whatever it is not by dying a humiliating death on the cross as he's just predicted That's why they're arguing about who's the greatest because they still think you know what it's about proving myself Their power, either physical power, but more likely their religious power to be good enough for God to be in his son's good books. God the son's good books. That's what's going on in verses 38 and 39 where John gets all irate at some other dude who's doing miracles in Jesus' name. He's like, what about him? He's not part of the clan. It's all about me. I'm the greatest. And you know, whether we've heard the gospel since we were kids or, or, or we've only been coming to the gate church for a few months, or maybe this is the first time you've, you've heard this, the human heart will naturally tell you the same. Like the disciples, we think that entering God's kingdom is all about power. It's all about being great, a good person. If I ask you now, you know, what does God think about you right now? Our natural go-to is thinking, okay, how's the last week been? You know, how have I performed? Where did I fall down? Where's my failure? And this reveals that we're no different to the disciples. We all think that to enter the kingdom of God is to do so by our religious power or not do so because we weren't religiously powerful enough. So Jesus has a, has a lesson for them and asked to turn this view on its head. And he's about to explain what it looks like to enter The kingdom of God. And if you've kind of like drifted off by my monotone voice, now's the time to come back, because this is the center of our passage, okay? Verse 35, sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. In other words, anyone who wants to enter God's kingdom must lay down their claim to power whether it's physical, spiritual, or religious power, we must become the very last, the lowest, a servant. In Jesus' words from a few weeks ago, we have to die to ourselves. So what does this look like? How do we do this and so enter God's kingdom by becoming the last, the lowest, and the servant of all? Well, I think we'll see. I'm not quoting a verse. I think we'll see that Jesus' answer is this, that we enter God's kingdom by doing this, by calling out to him with childlike faith. We enter God's kingdom by calling out to Him by childlike, with childlike faith. You see, it's impossible to call out to Jesus so long as we, like the disciples, think we're great, think we're good people. You know, who cries out for help when they're not in need? You see, when the Holy Spirit shows how desperate our need is, how deep our sin is, how serious our claim to greatness or goodness is, and how serious and dangerous our path towards hell is, we can only do one thing. We can only cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ, who can save us from hell. We cry out to Jesus like a child in trouble does to their their parents who, who need their help. This is childlike faith, and this is this. You know, Jesus is clear. We can only enter the kingdom of God like this. He described the childlike faith in verses thirty-six and thirty-seven of our passage. But you know what? We actually see it in action in the first part of the passage, in that healing of the the possessed boy. So let's go. We, you can see we're working our way backwards, if you like. Um, go back to chapter nine, verse seventeen, beginning of our passage. It says this, a man in the crowd answered, teacher, I bought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that's robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they couldn't. Okay, so here a boy is possessed by, uh, some commentators talk about epilepsy here. Um, we could talk about that afterwards if you want, but actually Matthew, Mark, Luke are all very clear. This is a spirit that is possessing this child, and it's a harmful spirit. And we pick up the story from verse um, 21. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, the father answered, he has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But don't miss the link here. Just as the boy is bound by the presence of a spirit, so too are we bound by the presence of sin. Just as this spirit has tried to kill the boy in the fire, sin will also lead us to the place where the fire is never quenched. The big question is, how will this boy, and by extension, how will we be saved? And of course, you know the answer, I've already given it, by childlike faith in Jesus. Look at the end of verse 22. The father says, but if you, Jesus, can do anything, take pity on us and help us take pity on us. Humble, isn't it? Childlike faith in Jesus. This man has become the least and the lowest. A far cry from Jesus' disciples claiming to be the greatest between themselves. And look how Jesus responds to this man's faith, verse 23. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes eternal healing, eternal freedom in God's kingdom, you name it, everything is possible for who? The one who displays great power. The one who can convince God that they're good enough. No, the one who calls out in childlike faith in Jesus' ability to save us. And the man responds with perhaps the clearest expression of faith in Christ. Any Christian will have this experience. He says, immediately the, the boy's father exclaims, Lord, I do believe Help me overcome my unbelief. Lord, I know you can do this for me. Lord, I know you can save me. Have mercy on me. And so with childlike faith, this man has become the last, the lowest, and the servant of all. And in so doing, verse 25, Jesus heals the boy. And what is true of this boy out of physical and spiritual healing is true of us and our eternal healing. Entering God's kingdom is seen in this little interchange. Take pity on me, Jesus, and help me. Lord, I know you saved me from hell by faith alone. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Childlike faith in Jesus. So it's taken quite a while to get here, but the obvious question is, have you entered God's kingdom? Have you called on Christ to take away your sin by his death on the cross? Have you given up your claim to greatness or to being a a good person by becoming the last, the servant of all in this way? If not, why not today? God has flung the gates of his kingdom open against which the gates of hell will not prevail. Have you entered by calling out to Christ? Listen to Jesus if you snatch this gracious offer of eternal life out of his hands, you are saved. You have no hell to fear. You have only the glorious expectation of entering God's kingdom, of the feast, of forever friendship with the Lord, of full forgiveness, of loving embrace and a fatherly smile. We've become citizens of this future kingdom and we're on our way there, 100%. But while our future is certain, remember that in these chapters of Mark, Jesus is teaching his disciples about what following him looks like, what following towards that kingdom looks like, i.e. what does it look like now? So that's what we're going to close with. Our final question is, how do we follow Jesus towards his kingdom now? What does that look like? Because we're on a completely new path now as Christians. Okay? We were once on a path claiming our own greatness, weren't we? That's what we've seen. I'm a good person. We're loudly like the disciples, or quietly in our own hearts. We were on that path that led to hell. But we've been humbled. We have fallen at Jesus' feet like the father of the possessed boy. And in this way we've become the last the lowest and the servant of all. And now we're followers of Jesus. So what does it mean to follow him towards that kingdom that he is one for us? And you might be disappointed by this, but the answer is we follow him toward his kingdom in exactly the same way as we enter his kingdom. Exactly the same by increasingly laying down our claim to greatness in verse 35, by becoming the last, the lowest, the servant of all. This means a whole new direction for your life. It's the the complete opposite direction of where you were were headed. You know, the world we live in and our own hearts tell us, this is all about us. It's all about me. We see it everywhere in in our world and our society. Take, take career, for example. Career is a good God-given thing which is used to, to, to help human flourishing and to be a blessing toward the world. But actually, at least in my experience, career is used to say, do you know what, where do you want to get? What, what do you want to be? And we'll, we'll, we'll let you do that. At least that's been my experience in my workplace. Or what about social media? A good, thing that we can connect with people who we're not geographically close to, to to build relationships with and and grow in relationships. But actually, when I look at social media, I just see, do you know what? These are people trying to build their own kingdoms, trying to convince others. Do you know what? I'm the greatest. I'm not saying that's everyone. I'm just saying that's what I see when I look at it. Or what about our, our time, money, possessions? We see them naturally as resources to pour into our own lives, our own well-being, our own happiness, rather than resources to pour into others and to serve God's kingdom by. You see, on our previous path, this is normal. This is just, you know, path of the course. Life revolved around us, but not, not so following Jesus, the one who died for us. He's put us on a completely new path, not ending in eternal judgment, but in eternal life in his kingdom. Verse 35, our key verse is a call for us to adopt his kingdom's character now as we prepare to take up our place with him. Not to earn our place in his kingdom, but because we're already citizens of it by his grace. And the defining characteristic of his kingdom, as Jesus displays on the cross, when he lays down his life for those who would enter it, is all about laying down our lives for the good of others, of spending ourselves, of all of our resources, time, money, possessions, whatever, for the good, especially the eternal good of others around us. You see how this is essentially exactly the same thing as what we saw two weeks ago when Jesus said, following him is going to look like dying to yourself and taking up your cross. But let's be careful, because if you're sat there fearful, discouraged, thinking, Do you know what, my life just isn't this other person centred. Jesus has very, very good news, because coming full circle, back to verse 43, you know where Jesus talks about, you know, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Who is Jesus talking to there? Is he talking to people who haven't chosen to follow him? No. He's talking to his disciples, his followers. He's talking to people following him toward his kingdom. And so Jesus gloriously affirms what the rest of the Bible does, that that even having been freed from the penalty of sin, the presence of sin still continues in his people. Jesus knows that you're a sinner, And that's good news. And it's even better news because look, there he is in the middle of his sinful followers graciously teaching them now what it looks like to navigate that sin as they follow him toward his kingdom. And he does exactly the same with us today by his Holy Spirit. His presence among us. And so our question again, how do we as sinners follow Jesus towards his kingdom? How do we become the last and the servant of all? Well, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Jesus' presence amongst us, we lay down our claim of greatness. We lay down our decision to call the shots for my life, and we take aim at the sin that is still in us. Not to enter God's kingdom, but because we're already citizens of it. Listen, we take this Really seriously at the gate church some of you might be really put out by this But we take it really seriously because Jesus does one of our aspirations. I don't know. Is it one? Yeah There live authentically, okay, this is one of our our, our aspirations is to live authentically Nobody likes hypocrisy been like plaguing in the church for thousands of years. No one likes hypocrisy We want to live authentically and by that we mean as citizens of God's kingdom we want to be getting ready to take up that citizenship by showing who and whose rule we now belong to. That's why we take sin so seriously. Because Jesus clearly does. So if you're a Christian today, be encouraged that you are headed towards God's eternal kingdom, 100%. But here's a challenging question that Jesus asks us. Where is there sin in your life? Where is there sin in your life? There may be something so big that's overshadowing all else in your walk with Jesus. I don't know. This time of year, you're cheating on your tax return. You know, you're, you're, you're a compulsive liar. You're addicted to pornography. You keep ending up in your boyfriend or girlfriend's bed. You're, you're always aggressive with your spouse. Jesus says, as someone whose price for sin, I have paid in full. Take aim at that sin. Fight hard for holiness. Cut it off. Gouge it out. Or sin might be something that, you know what, you're so used to now. It's such a part of your life. You're, you're kind of caught up in what the so-called respectable sins. No, you're not doing any of those things that I've just mentioned, but your life shows general discontentment. You're grumpy. You're greedy. You're slow to listen to others. You're lazy to pursue others in your community group. You're slow to commit to church. You're not, you just generally don't put others before yourself. You're just a little bit selfish. I mean, who does that not comprise here? Who, who can say, that's not me? <laughs> I can't. And Jesus says, when you see it, when the Holy Spirit shows you that, that sin, as citizens of his kingdom, don't accommodate it, take aim at it. This is to become the lowest and the servant of all. Do you see why? Because to take myself off the throne of my life and to have God rule over me as he so deserves, that is for me to put myself low instead of where I was. I'm his servant now. Friends, of course, this isn't like, go, do it. This is a lifelong process. This is what all of us are called to over the course of our lives. I'd love to spend another 40 minutes looking at how to do that, but as the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, has brought to your mind something, some area of your life where you feel defeated or like where you just, you're just no longer in the fight against that anymore. Let me give you one easy practical step to take. One thing not to do and one thing to do. The thing not to do is don't remain quiet about it. Don't say, do you know what? Uh, uh, yeah, I'll think about that. I'll, I'll, I'll fight, I'll fight that kind of on my own this next, next week. Don't do that. What you should do is you should speak to your community group leader. Speak to someone. Speak to us as, as your pastors. Speak to a trusted friend at a church. Or if you're not used to coming to church, speak to a Christian that you know. The apostle James says this to a church. Confess your sins to each other and pray each other. Why? So that you may be healed. Friends, fighting sin and growing in grace as Christians is a community project. As a church, we're here to live authentic lives together, to fight sin together, to follow Jesus together. And before we were saved, we had to hide our sin, trying to convince others, Do you know what, I'm alright, I'm a good person. But now, because Jesus this morning assures all who come to him that they are saved, and we're saying, yep, count me in that, I'm expect to be saying, I'm a sinner, I need people's help. I've been outed, if you like. I don't need to be, feel shame of taking my sin to other people, saying, I need help here. We can fight sin now in the full freedom and enjoyment of knowing that that sin has been paid for by Jesus on the cross. And so Jesus recruits us to the battle. But he's already won the war. The outcome is secure for you. So we're free to die to ourselves, to become the last, the lowest, and the servant of all. We're free to use our lives in the service of God and of others. We're free to cut off any sinful part of our lives that would stand in the way of that. I think we're just going to have some time now just to to sit and just to think for, 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 for a minute or so. What has the Holy Spirit brought to your mind? What do you, perhaps it's thinking about Jesus for the first time. Perhaps you think, do you know what? I need to take aim at that. We're just going to have a, a minute or so and then, and then Callum's going to come up, um, and, uh, and, and play and we'll stand and join him and sing. But before that, shall I pray? Lord Jesus, wake us up out of Our distracted and fretting lives, which seem to centre so much on the temporal and things that won't last into eternity, Heavenly Father, we pray. That you would shock us with the reality of our sin and our situation before you, but that we wouldn't stay there. That we would see Christ, everything he's done for us by dying for that sin on the cross, to, to set us free forever so we'd be with you forever. Heavenly Father, we pray as your followers, as a church, that we would fight sin in our own lives and help one another to do that better so we live authentically kingdom-centered, gospel-centered, Jesus-centered lives with ourselves as the least, the lowest, and the servants of all. And we pray that for your great glory. Amen.